This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal, and I'm Jess Khanam. And this is Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a lot to talk about today, uh, from the government shutdown to Palestine and Martin Luther King. But first of all, um, we want to send out our, our kind of uh, deep kind of appreciation and kind of, and at the same time, uh, kind of absolute disgust at the 800,000 government workers who are going on their second month without a paycheck. I, I, I really want to encourage all of us to kind of take a step back and fathom and understand what it would be like not to be paid for more than a month and how many of us have to live paycheck to paycheck. And we have 800,000 individuals, Americans, as well as however millions of people that is because those are just the individuals, not even the families of people who are being held hostage by the president of the United States to build, an, you know, whatever he wants to build. I mean, this has gone from the absurd to the outrageous to the disgraceful. And, um, you know, what, what I, I can't even believe that the solution that the Trump administration has, Jamal, is this is what Wilbur Ross said, the Secretary of Commerce. He said that people should take out a loan in order to survive not being paid by the U.S. government. That, that's really what this administration has come down to in terms of their solution to holding 800,000 people and millions of people hostage by this shutdown. Well, I mean, let's take it back a little bit because now you're right. We, many of, uh, well, not many, all of the 800,000 plus federal employees will be missing their second check. No, third check now. Third check. They've missed two now and it's, they're going to so, go on their third okay, missed check. So, so, you know, without pay, they've been working, 800,000 uh, of them. They're stuck in the middle between this whole issue about, mostly about the wall, about the $5.7 billion to build that wall. But if we go back and start discussing the history of what I call the wall of shame, because we have many wall of shames, uh, many walls of shame across the globe. Absolutely. We've seen what happened with the Berlin Wall. We know about Israel's apartheid wall. And there are other walls where people were locked in and where families were separated, and, and so forth. We can discuss some of these walls. But now, you know, this whole idea of the wall was a racist idea, just To begin it, with. It, to begin with, was an idea to appease to his base. You know, if you go back, remember, the chance those racists build that wall, build that wall, and then people, and then he, and Trump will... Will, will scream and say, and who's going to pay for the wall? And everyone will shout, Mexico. So, and Mexico, they're going to build that beautiful wall, and they're going to love it. That's, these are, I'm not making up these stories. And because people are now, or the media, is uh, explaining a, this, this uh, political you know, ch chess game, as they are describing it, about the wall right. without discussing the history behind it. It's not because the Democrats or Nancy Pelosi don't want to give him the money for security or to build that wall. 
It's because he made a stupid promise, a racist promise, for no reason, uh, making up stories about security, about all these immigrants who are going to come into this country, rape your women, kill your children, kidnap people. Bring drugs. Bring drugs. And that's why we need this emergency, because he made it as they always talk about a crisis. We have a crisis. So since he made that promise to his core base about the wall, and then, of course, Nancy Pelosi came into power after the midterm elections, and he was used to rolling over, uh, having people roll over, actually, when he said, I want to do this and that. And someone, for a change, said to him, no, we're not going to write that check for that stupid wall. Actually, even when the House was still under Paul Ryan's control, and he had full control of the, you know, the House, the Senate, and the executive branch, you know, control of all three branches, the two major legislative branches of power, he was not able to get the funding for the wall. There, there's certainly relatively large numbers of, of Republicans, and not just Democrats, Jamal, who believe that this wall is a complete farce. And, and if we just look at some very simple facts, he says that terrorists are going to come from the Mexico border. But yet when you go to the DHS website and you look at statistics, where do people who are on the terrorist watch list or so-called suspected terrorists come from? They come from airport points of entry. Uh, Less than a couple of hundred in the last year were suspected who came from the, you know, points of border or who came from Mexico. Second, the, the kind of drug infestation that Trump uh, is speaking about. Do you know that most of the illegal drugs that come into this country, number one, come from China. Number two, they come through the U.S. Postal Service. They're mailed. Fentanyl is mailed from China and brought to the United States. Or driven through points of entry. Driven through points of entry, or it's come through, you know, uh, through smuggling from boats. So... Or from Canada. You actually have more people coming to this country illegally from the Canadian border than you have from the border that we have with Mexico. So if you just want to look at the facts on its face, not even look at the political analysis of it, the facts on its face suggest that maybe we should build a wall with Canada and and maybe not even... With Mexico. Look, early in the government shutdown, Speaker Nancy Pelosi called the wall immoral. And it is right. This is what it is. It's an immoral idea. And the wall has been a symbol of exclusion. And the wall has been, just like the MAGA hats now, <laughs> how people see the MAGA hats and people wonder why they get worse over when they see someone wearing a MAGA hat, they think when you talk about the symbol of exclusion, you know, we're going to stop the Mexicans from coming here. They're the ra- they are the rapists. They are the drug dealers and, and, and so forth. It's a symbol of racism. Well, I want to go a step further, Jamal. Actually, I, I believe that the MAGA hat is the new KKK uh, hat. It's 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 uh, just as the Ku Klux Klan wore a head cover to hide, you know, and 
identify. So it did two things. It identified kind of this racist, hateful ideology, but also masked them. The MAGA hat has become the new uh, cover, the new KK cover. Because when you I, when you wear the MAGA hat, you're not just doing it for fun. It becomes a symbol. It identifies you. It carries with it the full weight and symbolic power of what this administration represents, which is exclusion, division, racism, and things of that nature. That's why when the, these kids from this Catholic high school in Kentucky were facing off with uh, native indige- these two native indigenous individuals at the Lincoln uh, Memorial staring down uh, this native ind- indigenous individual, Mr. Phillips, from this young kid, uh, Sandman, who was wearing a MAGA hat, for him to say that he came, you know, peaceful and wanted to discuss things and was interested in kind of protecting this native indigenous individual, no one buys it, Jamal. No one buys it. You wear a MAGA hat and you go face-to-face with an individual, that is not a sign of respect. Of course. That, that, that's a sign of disrespect. Of course. And that's... That's kind of where we're at right now. The MAGA hat has become the new head covering. So, so I want to talk a little bit about back to the wall and some facts about the wall and to clarify some of these misconceptions. Yeah, let's do that. Right. So, um, and again, this is Trump's wall of shame that we are talking about. So... <clears throat> Fact number one, one of those facts, Jess, and people don't know, that before Trump took office, there were 654 miles or about uh, 1,000 kilometers of barrier along the southern border between the United States and Mexico, right? Yeah. And since he took office, Trump built nothing. So every single president, they put some money into fixing some of those barriers where they felt that certain areas uh, within, you know, on that border needed some reinforcement without the whole idea of having a wall because we have areas just where it's impossible to cross natural right. natural barriers, rivers, mountains, valleys, and, and so forth. So Trump, basically, it's just a slogan for him for the past two years, and even with the uh, GOP with the Republicans in control of the House, both uh, the Senate and, and Congress, he basically did not put a penny or any energy in building that wall. That's fact number one. Fact number two, no one really knows how much the wall is going to cost. That's right. So this figure, you know, he's asking for $5.7 billion. And so you're getting, you know, I'm, I've, I've been looking at different, different allocations and estimates uh, of people talking about how much it's going to cost. No one really knows the number. It puts the number, it, it, it has different ranges. I've seen estimates from $12 billion to seventy billion dollars. Well, yeah. If you so, wanna, if you wanna build the full yeah, length, it's well, gonna well, be well, up to seventy, well, 70 that's, billion. Well, this is what this is what he wants. So this figure, where did he pull this figure out of a hat? Five point seven billion dollars, which really will build a very short distance uh, in 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 the wall. So. Uh, according to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the CPB, 
They said on an average it costs approximately $6.5 million per mile to construct a new wall or replace existing legacy fence. So do the math. That's why you come up with the $70 million. So the $5.7 billion, basically it's not going to do anything. Yeah, it's but just Jamal, like you said $70 million. It's $70 billion. $70 billion. With a B. Yeah, with a B. So, so it's between the 12 billion, this is the lowest estimate, to 70 billion. So, okay, then another fact which now many people know about that uh, when Trump was shouting and screaming, build that wall, build that wall, and Mexico is going to pay for that wall, he was talking about a solid, according to him, beautiful concrete <laughs> wall. Now he's talking about a steel basically barrier so his story keeps changing keeps changing it has changed he was talking about a concrete wall he, in, on october uh, of 2017 when the trump administration revealed uh, its plan uh, it, it it showed different models eight actually like different i guess uh, models of this particular wall 30 foot tall wall concrete prototypes right that's where they what they were showing so and he by the way he was describing uh, describing you know that's going to be a beautiful uh you know concrete wall <laughs> and he has built many buildings so that should be a, a walk in the parks a piece of cake to build that now he's talking about a uh, steel one and he's talking about it now he's going describing it as totally effective while at the same time beautiful so this is how his story has changed well it it, it let's not forget Jamal he's also saying build the wall and crime will fall well, That's his I'll get to that. Build the wall and crime will fall. That's fact number four. Well, it's it's so 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 the other thing where they keep saying that this is a crisis and all these immigrants are going to come here. The caravan. We don't hear, by the way, that much about the, those caravans. No. They somehow dissipated. Uh, they evaporated in thin air. We don't hear about that. No. So he was making such like a big crisis that the caravan was going to reach the border, and we're going to have thousands and thousands of people trying to cross. The number, that's fact number four, the number of apprehensions at our southern border has declined over time. Significantly. So they, yeah. they, you have stats, actually, stats going back all the way, Jess, from the year 2000 to two, to the year two, uh, end of year 2018, do you know that in the year 2000, total number of migrants, this is according to the Border Patrol, we had 1.6 million, basically, apprehensions. And an apprehension doesn't mean they put them all in jail, but they hold them and then they send them back. So we had 1.6. The number in... The when Trump came into office, this is after the Obama administration. Because yeah. remember, Obama earned the earned the nickname as the chief uh, deporter, basically, because yeah. he yeah. was deporting people. <coughs> Under the Obama administration, they've had less than four hundred thousand apprehensions, and and under actually the Obama administration, the figure dropped to about. 378,000 
And then in 2018, it went up under Trump, uh, uh, you know, went up to 400,000. But this is a big difference from 1.6 million. So that crisis, he man they manufactured, he and his administration manufactured a crisis that actually has been on the decline. We, uh, the, the, from 1.6 million to 400,000, yes. But I think that's uh, a couple of things about that, Jamal. First of all, facts do matter. And so, you know, obviously the, the, the biggest important point here is that everything that's coming from the Trump administration is, is a fiction, is a made-up fact, uh, is not based on reality. And the idea of a crisis at the border clearly does not exist. And if there is a crisis, it's clearly not on the southern border. But... The political cost and the human cost to this manufactured crisis has gone from just, you know, what was already inconceivable, you know, basically separating children from their parents, because that's really the plan of the uh, Trump administration and DHS under Christian uh, Nielsen, Kristen Nielsen, is to, you know, this family separation policy because it's a crisis. So they did damage to these families and to these children under the guise of a fake crisis. Now they've upped the ante, Jamal. Now the ante is not only are we going to tear families apart who are trying to escape horrific violence in Central, in Central America and Guatemala and El Salvador and, and other places. But now they're holding 800,000 workers and their families hostage uh, to the point that people are losing their homes. They're going to lose their health insurance. They're not going to be able to pay their mortgages. We're talking, we're talking about – and the people who are supposed to be protecting us from these so-called terrorists have been working – now, for over a month, TSA agents have been working a month without being paid. Do you feel safer now? No, absolutely not. But this brings me, actually, this is a segue to fact no, facts number five and six. Because the arrests now that we've been having on the border, they're mostly asylum seekers. Yeah. So the number of migrants trying to cross has dropped from 1.6 million to 400,000, but the number of asylum seekers have gone up. So we're not talking about criminals. We're talking about people running away and from seeking, violence, from violence and yeah. seeking asylum. So the number actually have gone up by 43% as far as the asylum seek seekers. Furthermore, which is fact number six, which most people don't know that, most illegal immigration is from visa overstayers, right. not people crossing the border. Right. Most of the un uh, undocumented or illegal, uh, so-called illegal immigrants in this country, people who have overstayed their visa, they came to this country legally either on a tourist visa or on a student visa. Or a work visa. Or a work visa, and it ran out. And they, and they remain in this country. And most of them, they flew into this country. They did not come on foot. <laughs> they did not cr cross the Rio Grande, Jess. They came by airplane and into a lot this of, country. And a lot of them, frankly, came from Europe. Let's let's be honest. All over. Yeah. All so over so when so when they talk about the the, the large number num number, and this is when uh, now Trump is trying to also 
uh, negotiate with the uh, the youngsters who were who grew up in this country. Now they became part of the equation, right? All these people, their families, they came here by illegally and they overstayed. Fact number seven: the wall is, and this is by all experts, including those who work in homeland security, the drug enforcement agents, agency, the DEA. The war is unlikely to stop the, basically, drugs coming from this of country. Of course. Nationwide, yes, heroin seizures reached 7,970 kilograms in 2017. 39% seized at the U.S.-Mexico border. The rest, like you said, they came through other means. People flying with the, with the heroin. Mailing. Mailing heroin. People driving, but definitely they weren't coming, uh, you know, by means of a caravan or on foot to, no, to this country. No. So, so these are the seven facts I wanted to talk about. No, and I think, listen, Jamal, I think those facts are really important, and I think it's about time that um, these facts were not just articulated and spoken about so that everybody can be informed about them, but need to be placed in this political context. And the political context is that Trump has boxed himself in a corner. He is in a corner by his own doing. He is the one, and you, you know, you, you had the quotes that he had from the, you know, from the campaign trail, day after day after day, saying that he would build the wall and that Mexico would pay. He's got nothing else to give to his base right now, Jamal. There's nothing else. He has to deliver this or nothing is going to happen. And unfortunately, what has happened is that he has used the shutdown of the U.S. government as his last bargaining tool. He's got nothing else. Now, we have been critical of Nancy Pelosi a lot on this show, justifiably, because of her lack of moral stance on, on a lot of very progressive issues. But my hat today is tipped to Nancy Pelosi for maneuvering politically one of the most amazing uh, political moves, I, I think, in recent memory, Jamal, for, we can't say the word, you know, the words that I really want to say, you know, on air, but basically slapping Donald Trump and putting him in his place. He's got nothing. Right now, Trump's uh, approval ratings are at the lowest they've ever been. They're about, depending on which poll you look at, they're between 32, 32 to 34 to 36%. So this is, you know, the entire, so even among his base, he's, he's uh, you know, he's gone down dramatically. He's got only one option, Jamal. He only can either open the government or keep it closed, both of which are lose-lose for him politically. And he's not doing the right thing because basically, I mean, uh, what crime did the 800,000 uh, federal employee commit to receive the, such a punishment? They, they, they committed the crime of being hardworking individuals. And, That's and, the crime. And this is, uh, I mean, uh, and Trump wanted to negotiate, in fact, he is getting most of the funding, even though everyone knows that this is a joke. As I've explained earlier, the war, the war to build that wall, need, he needs seventy billion dollars minimum. So the Minimum. Democrats were willing to 
put that money on the table, maybe even more, just to have it for security enhancement. In other words, to for the uh, Department of Home, Homeland Security, it's not in some places might need a wall, some places might need uh, more electronic devices and so forth. And he refused this because he made that promise. And you know why? Because he listens to Ann Coulter and he, he, he listens to Rush, those Limbo. Pe- Rush Limbo and those people to the far right. Now, he put himself between a rock and a hard place because he knows, they told him, if he stops saying, talking about the wall, if he doesn't show that he wants something, he's going to lose the 2020 election. Well, but here- and so he's sacrificing the 800,000 people, which, by the way, they've been playing games. They're, they've, been, they've, be, they've learned, uh, I guess he learned this from his friend Benjamin Netanyahu or maybe a, an advice from Jared Kushner on how to repackage the wall. You know, they started talking about the wall, and they know that this doesn't sit well with many Americans, with the millions of Americans here, so they changed their story. It's a barrier. It's a barrier. Well, who used that terminology? Israel, when Israel put that ugly apartheid wall, they called uh, it a barrier. And they started saying, first, oh, it's a barrier. Then later on, it's a fence. It's a separation fence. No, it's a security fence. How beautiful. You know, you have a white picket fence between <laughs> you and your neighbors. So, so it's now it's this ugly 30 foot high concrete wall, which basically that was the model he was getting Israeli companies bidding and they were providing him with plans for that wall. Now he says, no, no, it's going to be a steel see-through barrier. So, so there, and then uh, most recently, if you listen to the language, the, uh, an interview that um, Kilian Conway had with a CNN reporter, her name is Abby Phillip, when she was asked about the wall, what did she say? She didn't want to hear her talking about the wall. I'm, I'm not making this up. This is after, after Trump has been saying build that wall. She said, well, you don't keep saying that wall. It's, it's, it's not a wall rather than it is steel slat barriers. She corrected her. So they're trying to kind of veer away well, it from like using the, that wall. It sounds like they're using the Israeli technique, uh, Jamal, of uh, changing the words but not the reality. I, I have news for uh, President Trump. There will be no wall. It will not get built. Um, he is backed into a lose-lose corner because if he opens up the government and starts negotiating without the wall, he will lose the 2020 election for sure and his base. And if he doesn't open the government, it's going to cause a catastrophic failure of many aspects of our civil society. You know, Jamal, the FBI, uh, their FBI agent association came out and said, because FBI agents are not getting paid. And the FBI is really on the forefront in the so-called war on terror. So FBI agents doing surveillance, FBI agents making sure that this country are safe, they're saying that the security of the United States is in jeopardy as we speak because FBI agents are not getting paid. They can make more money in the private sector. We're going to lose these agents. The FBI is not able to function. TSA agents are now talking about Jamal going on a nationwide strike. And, not be, and if that happens, all airports close. 
So in the name of security, which is what, why Trump and Netanyahu are talking about building these walls, they're actually making safety and security for everyday Americans. They're making it unsafe for all of us. So my question to you, Jamal, Trump is a lose-lose situation. What do you think is going to happen? We're going on now past a month of this shutdown. Is he going to keep it shut down? Is he going to – what's he going to do? Well, uh, it's hard to say, I mean, because he's not a uh, rational person, that he will keep it – you know, I mean, listen to his uh, daughter-in-law uh, recently when she asked about these people who – weren't getting paid. What did she say? This is Laura Trump. This yeah. is Laura Trump. What did she say? She basically said, take one for the team. Yeah. She, she said basically, to, the, to the workers. And that's why people were going crazy. It's kind of, they were comparing her to Marie Antoinette, which actually Marie Antoinette never said uh, this. Let them eat cake. You know, here is someone who lives, uh, you know. Lavishly. Uh, lavishly. She can say, well, you know. Take it for the teens, you know, like they, the, the president is doing the right thing. So what if they uh, don't get their paychecks for a month or two because he's doing the right thing? So I feel at some point we are going to, to reach the breaking point. Because but the what's, breaking point, what's the breaking point? The, well, the, I tell you what's the breaking Sadly, and it's going to be, I hope it doesn't get to that point. Because I do appreciate the hardworking working men and women in the federal government, people who are working in the TSA, Department of Homeland Security, the Coast Guard, etc., working without pay. But we are now hearing stories, and you know that. This is not a big secret. Some of them are going and driving Uber. Some of them are having second and third jobs. And then even even with all good intentions, when they want to do their work right and, and they haven't gone, like the easy way to do is to just walk out and, and go on strike. They haven't done so. That's why we are still functioning. But if you listen to all the analysts, and I've, I've listened this morning to the former, uh, I think, FAA director, and he's saying, you know, we have great men and women doing their work like the traffic, uh, air traffic, air traffic controllers. controllers. But, you know, this is a highly sensitive, posi- high se- highly sensitive positions where you need all your faculties around because you pe- these people work 10 hours a day. If they come to, jo- to, to work tired or they're thinking about things like, how am I going to pay for my, uh, you know, uh, the tuition of my kids or my mortgage and they are distracted? Accidents could happen. Absolutely. So I hope he doesn't push us to this level where we're going to see him. And I hold Donald Trump responsible and the people who are supporting him for the lives of Americans who are going to get affected should something, God forbid, happens, you know. But, Jamal, I actually have a – actually. And this is when you're going to see a total collapse, when people okay. are going to go walk into, on, sure. to, into the streets demanding that they open that government. I actually have a pretty awful theory, and I'm, I'm going to share it with you. It's a terrible theory, and I really hope that I'm wrong. But unfortunately, I actually think that part of Trump's inner circle, which is Kushner – himself, um, the new chief of staff, um, 
I actually believe that secretly they're hoping that something bad does happen, that it's kind of this idea that if there is a terrorist incident or a mass casualty event, what will happen, just like happened, you know, after 9-11, it will marshal and galvanize universal support for, from everybody. He'll declare a national emergency and be able to not only build his wall, but also take control over all of the levers of government because his next trump card, so to speak— Dictatorship. Yeah, is declaring a national emergency, Jamal, and taking the levers of power and control. And the United States right now is very vulnerable to this transition. I absolutely hope that I'm wrong. But I I'm, hope you're a hundred percent wrong. I hope I'm two hundred percent wrong. Because the scenario wrong. that you have painted is terrible. It is terrible, but it's a, it's a terrible scenario. But this is the only. I don't think we we sh we we sh will get to that point. I'm hoping we don't get to that point. I'm also hoping that we don't have certain issues like uh, issues that will affect the safety and security of a single citizen in the United States because of this crazy idea of shutting down the government and. Uh, and playing political games. You have been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco. This is 89.5 FM. We're going to shift gears right here. And I want to ask you, just I'm going to uh, talk about it a little bit because everyone has been talking about uh, one thing recently, at least in our circle, the outstanding piece uh, by Michelle Alexander in the New York Times. Well, and, well, and, and the uh, title, and yes, this was in the New York Times, by the way. If you believe it. If you believe it. The <laughs> title was Time to Break the Silence About Palestine. And it's been freaking out a lot of people and a lot of negative publicity and attacks on her persona and on the New York Times and their editorial board for allowing her the platform well, to speak freely about well, let's, let's the conditions in, there. Yeah, that, let's put it in context, Jamal. This Michelle Alexander is a scholar who's written incredible books about the new Jim Crow. She's written books about mass incarceration. She is considered among... Uh, people in the academy and in progressive circles among the most, you know, brightest, you know, most articulate uh, progressive thinkers of our time. She's uh, really an extraordinary person. So, you know, her specialty is racism, mass incarceration, and Jim Crow. So she knows a little bit about apartheid. She knows a little bit about racism. And she knows a little well, bit her about... Bo her book's title is The New Jim Crow, by the, the way. The New Jim Crow, exactly. So she writes on the eve of Martin Luther King, you know,'s birthday and holiday. And she says, gives this amazing analysis on the oppression that Palestine <clears throat> and Palestinians have been subjected to by the Israeli government, by the state of Israel... And she wonders out loud, how has it come to be that essentially the argument that, you know, we've been making a very long time, when are we going to open our eyes, 
you know, as a, as a world community and as a people who believe in justice, to this deep injustice that has been perpetrated against the people of Palestine. It, it, it's, it's an extraordinary uh, opinion piece. And she talks about, of course, the uh, BDS movement. The, she talks about BDS. The, the BDS. And let me just read a little, yeah. a little uh, summary uh, uh, or how she actually summarized the, the growth of the boycott uh, movement in the U.S. And this is what she wrote. Even in Congress, change is on the horizon. For the first time, two sitting members, Representatives Ilhan Omar, Democrat of Minnesota, and Rashida Tlaib, Democrat of Michigan, publicly support the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. In 2017, Representative Betty McCollum, Democrat of Minnesota, introduced a resolution to ensure that no U.S. military aid went to support Israel's juvenile military detention system. Israel regularly prosecutes Palestinian children, detainees in the occupied territories in military court. So this is one one section, one yeah. one uh, sentence so, that she wrote. But but she one paragraph. I should yeah, say. W- w- one aspect. It's really a brilliant uh, op-ed, and it's a call to all people of conscience. It's a call to all people who believe in justice that. If you're going to be committed to justice, you have to be committed to justice for Palestine and for Palestinians. Now, Michelle Alexander is not Palestinian, Jamal. She's a scholar. She's an activist. She's African-American. But she is not a partisan in a sense of being a Palestinian. She really is alluding to the fact that one of the most important speeches that Martin Luther King gave was actually four days before he was shot and killed. He gave a beautiful sermon at the National, uh, at the National Church in, in, in D.C. Um, and basically said this was in light of the Vietnam War and all the difficulties that were going on at the time, obviously in the 60s. And he said, our problem is basically not with the right, the people who are committed to war. Our problem in this country are progressives who have shut their eyes to the injustice against what's happening in Vietnam and the injustice that's happening home against African-Americans. So in that tradition, Michelle Alexander is issuing a similar call saying, hey, everybody, you cannot close your eyes to this injustice, to what's happening in Palestine. It was, Jamal, like two things uh, struck me. Nobody in the mainstream media picked this up. Total, total Silence. neglect. They don't, uh, for Nothing. example, when you have a big Nothing. piece that made a lot of waves. Nothing. And, and Nothing. created a lot of attacks. Nothing. You know, the author will, will be invited to come on CNN, Fox News. Nothing. To defend their views. Basic, they are basically trying to isolate her, is, isolate her and totally but, ignore her. But even on the progressive left, you're saying, you know, Fox and CNN, but even on... Uh, so-called progressive television like MSNBC, let's say, or things like that, total radio silence about uh, Michelle Alexander. They have isolated her from, from this articulation. The second thing that we should talk about, of course, is that all the syncophats of Israel, like Alan Dershowitz and his ilk, are attacking her attacking her well, ad hominem. well she's coming under tremendous attack and that's why i'm actually wondering why the mainstream media is not 
talking about this because they because they'll have to give her they'll have to give her a voice. And this is at a time. This is not the first African American voice who have been attacked. There is a pattern here. So you know we had Mark Lamont Hill, Hill. Angela Davis, and now her. This is three in a row within what three four months. Yeah, period. basically two months. Yeah, less than less 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 than a quarter period coming out and saying hello, the right thing, exactly hello. These people are suffering. Nothing, by the way. She has said nothing that is so unusual that she had said nothing that cameras have not captured. Children coming under fire. Uh, every single person who goes and visits the West Bank and Jerusalem, wherever, they can see apartheid in practice, Jim Crow uh, uh, rules. The Israeli government itself came with its own law, <laughs> basically the nation law. Well, it's a Jim Crow law. It's a Jim Crow law, highly publicized. So these scholars, because they're all scholars, by the way, every single one of them is a scholar, you know, Mark Lamont Hilp, he's a professor. Angela Davis is a, a professor. professor. And then she's also a writer and a scholar. No, she's actually a professor, and, too. You know, so they're coming and they're stating the obvious. And they're coming under tremendous attack. And they're not given a, a platform to defend themselves. And you're right. All these uh, uh, known... Uh, basically, uh, so-called progressive so avenues, avenues, yeah, but have I shut said, her out. Yeah, and not only this, but all these people who pretend to be defenders of justice and wherever they're attacking her from, basically, uh, but can the supporters of the Netanyahu regime, and I can't think about basically anything else that they are supporting apartheid. Uh, you know, most famously, Alan Dershowitz. So he, he looks he, around and he finds now the hill where he can publish an article calling it time to tell the truth about the Palestinian issue, which is a ridiculous. It's disrespectful. This is, this, is basically, this is basically a rehashing of making the case for Israel, which was basically debunked. And so Alan Dershowitz, which, by the way, he should worry about other issues, his relationship with the porno king Epstein and his involvement there. Right. And I'm sure more more things will come about that story. He's now, he's published a, an article, uh, you know, attacking the front page article of uh, the Sunday, basically Sunday review. And he calls it, you know, he begins his uh, article by saying the front page of the New York Times Sunday review featured one of the most biased poorly informed and historically inaccurate columns about the conflict between Israel and Palestine ever published <laughs> by a mainstream newspaper written by Michelle Alexander. You know, uh, this, is, this, is how, this is his opening statement. Okay, well, let me just say a few things, Jamal. First of all, you know, we have to um, really give credit where credit is due. And Michelle Alexander has taken on a formidable machine when it comes to the Israeli lobby, the pro-Israel lobby, the pro-Israel syncophants who will defend Israel's apartheid, oppressive occupation tactics under any circumstance. So 
she is an incredibly courageous individual. But when, as you said, you have Angela Davis, Mark Lamont Hill, and now Michelle Alexander all standing up for justice, my question to the so-called progressive elements of either the Democratic Party or people who call themselves progressive, why are you not defending Angela Davis, Michelle Alexander, and Mark Lamont Hill? Why have you left these... Fear. Why have you left these courageous individuals to, you know, to being attacked with so much vitriol by these hateful groups in support of these oppressive apartheid tactics, these pro-Israel tactics? I mean, Michelle Alexander should be not only celebrated for her courage, but she also needs our support right now. And we're hoping that people, because, you know, for the New York Times to write this, Jamal, it's a huge deal. And also, also we should appreciate the editorial board at the New York Times for Who's, allowing well, her to publish but this article. Come on, Jamal. They have let, the New York Times has let the Palestinians. I'm letting, I'm letting bygones be by, <laughs> because as long as they show g- uh, good intentions, which with this article, I think, you know, I'm not going to talk about the past. I mean, there is definitely an imbalance. In fact, uh, there was a, a recent uh, research done on how many times uh, right, right. articles are or how many... Uh, over the last 50 years. Over even. the last 50 years, pro-Palestinian versus pro-Israeli. The 99 to 1. It's The imbalance is so, so obvious, but, uh, you know... Uh, we're moving forward here. Well, You're I, having outspoken people. She's getting the support from from the community and people who understand this. But then again, you ask the question, and I go back to the politics of fear. And this is the sad reality about our uh, mainstream media institutions. They are, you know, succumbing to the politics of fear. Advertisers. Uh, people with influence and so forth, that for them to talk about justice, you know, remember uh, the the uh, terminology we use here, which is PEP, progressive except on Palestine. Progressive except for they Palestine. Are, uh, they are PEPs because they are willing to talk about, and we don't have, maybe we have some time to, to, to discuss like the situation in Venezuela, but they are, you know, willing to talk about human rights everywhere. Except, except Palestine. Except in Palestine. So when you have a great article by someone, a, some, a great person like herself and a scholar, they just bury their heads in the sand and pretend it didn't happen. Well, I, I actually, I think that's a good analysis, Jamal, and I actually think, though, and I said this to you um, before, before we went on air. But I, I, I am very apprehensive about saying that there are tipping points when it comes to Palestine because we have been let down in terms of justice in Palestine so many hundreds, if not thousands of times, where the international community and the progressive community have let Palestinians down time and time again. So I don't want to be as extreme as saying that there is a tipping point per se, but I am willing to say that there are a lot of uncomfortable people in Tel Aviv, that there are a lot of uncomfortable people at APAC, and that there are a lot of uncomfortable pro-Israel you know, hacks and supporters who are now seeing some cracks in the 
wall. Well, I call it cracks in the Hasbara, which is the cracks in the Hasbara, which is the Israeli propaganda and right. the apex propaganda and in this country. I think that they're seeing that. You know, their time is going to be coming to an end. So you think the tide is shifting? I feel like something has shifted with uh, Representative uh, Omar, with Representative Tlaib, uh, with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. By the way, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib are both on the Oversight Committee mm-hmm. <laughs> in the Congress, which is one of the most powerful uh, you know, committees that you can be on, and they're freshman Congress people. They're both pro-Palestinian in a significant way. So I kind of think times are changing, and um, it's interesting. In Michelle Alexander's uh, op-ed, she referenced lots of rabbis and Jewish groups who are support of course of Palestinian justice. So it it looks like something has really shifted. It has shifted. We have a few minutes left, and I want to talk about... Yeah, we only have a few minutes. What do you got, Jamal? The American interventionism. We're back to interfering. In other people's business. Not that we've stopped. We uh, never stopped. With with the situation in uh, Venezuela. And I can only say, because we don't have too too much time, but I've seen this scenario happening in the so-called Arab Spring. So for not that we're siding with this group versus that group in, in Venezuela. No, but Venezuela but, should decide for themselves. Exactly. So yeah. when you have uh, started with, the, with the President Trump recognizing the opposition as the interim president, then Canada follows suit and then other countries. This is crazy. It I is. mean, I mean, what business do we have? Is it oil? I mean, do we care about the Venezuelans who who have been flooding the country and trying to come to this country and we're preventing them from coming into this country? Exactly. And all of a sudden now we are talking about, you know, the support for the opposition. Haven't we we seen this scenario in Libya in uh, trying to change regime in in Iraq, and look what happened to the country and well, the destruction in Syria. Same. All these places. I w- mean, well, what actually, business does the United States have in Venezuela? So my statement to uh, President Trump and Secretary of Pompeo is the same that I gave to uh, Bush and uh, Powell, which is, if you break it, you own it. And if you think you're going to intervene and things are going to go okay, you're most likely, given the U.S. history of interventionism, you're going to break it. And if you break it, you own it. And as is what's happening in Iraq, as what's happening in Afghanistan and in Syria and beyond, when you break something like that, you have unintended consequences, which you may have no control over. Let the people of Venezuela decide their own fate. You're absolutely right. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. FM. Follow us on Facebook Live. Uh, this is Jamal Dajani too. Also go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, where you can download our shows. You can listen to our podcasts and of course you can listen to us live right here in san francisco on kpo san francisco also on their website uh, we stream on their website live kpo.com we'll see you next week and if you want to send us any comments 
It's ArabTalk at KPOO.com. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.